What is up, everybody? My name is James D. Fury, and this is Blackballed. Um, today we are doing do over, uh, in a sense, not in a sense. It is exactly like a do over. Um, now, listen. Over the, it's been really interesting over the last, uh, say, week or so. As many of you know, I have been covering the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church and all of their uh, activities in Canada, and we've been interviewing former members. And we've had some interesting things happen over the last week or so where there's been reporters in New Zealand um, who are on the case regarding the exclusive brethren inside their country. This headline says the ex-Plymouth brethren, Christ- brethren Christian Church members call for its charitable status to be stripped. And that is an interesting story because it mentions inside, I'll just read a little excerpt here. It was meant to be a spiritual pilgrimage, but as he handed over the bulging envelopes of cash to a North Dakota pig farmer, it occurred to Rob McLean that he was a part of a more mercenary mission. So this is uh, about Rob McLean, who I think it was 10 years ago or so uh, left the Plymouth Brethren. The exclusive Brethren member was among the delegations sent to the United States in the 1980s to meet that farmer, James Symington who, despite losing his sight and both legs to diabetes, held on to his position as global leader of the Brethren until his death. McLean said he was given the envelopes by church elders just before he left New Zealand. I was given all this money from various parts of New Zealand where, where, excuse me, of New Zealand. There was about 20 of us that went. It was like a little church group. I was given all these envelopes. I didn't know what was in them. They said, you give these to Mr. Symington. That's our giving from our church. This is something that's been um, said to me by several different members. And it has a a Sopranos kind of feel to it. Just envelopes full of cash given to the, to the sort of dear leader of the, of the church. And I chose that article to open with today because our guest today is the granddaughter of James Symington and her name is Carmen Drever. Carmen, welcome back to the show. And um, sorry about last time. Um, how are you, though? How, how's everything going? Doing good. We're live. Good. We're here. Everything's working. What more can we ask? That's for? right. <laughs> That's right. Um, like, was there, even though the audio was sort of suspect last time and that there was a lot of problems, did you have any, was there any blowback or was there any, did people reach out to you? Was, was there any sort of like, um, you know, result of, like of people communicating with you after last show? Oh, where to even start? Um, within be, before the show was even done, um, there was people from Western Australia, from New Zealand. I had contacts from literally around the globe reach out. And what were some of the things that they were saying? Everybody said it's about time somebody spoke out. It is this is a cult. It is dangerous. It is getting exceedingly more dangerous. Just just sheerly because of the amount of money they've amassed and the cruelty. I mean, it is all around the globe. This is heating up. That's right. And and so it, there is a little bit of a veneer 
um, attached to your story because of who your grandfather was. And I think from, from what the people that have contacted me since our interview, since our first interview have all said to me, you know, this person to, to watch this person speak out is a little different. It's not better or worse or whatever, but it has a different type of impact because your bloodline and, you know, and, and I think that I, I think a lot of people really need to understand that if someone in your position is speaking out about this organization, then there has to be something wrong. And listen, before I interviewed you, I've been following the history and the current stories of ex-members of this cult um, ex pretty extensively. I, you know, we, we've had cult experts on to talk about how dangerous it is. We've had um, ex-members basically tell their stories of things like sexual abuse and physical abuse, isolation. Um, but a lot of it is, is now centered around money as well. And, you know, I think 2022 is probably going to be the year. And I just wanted your thoughts on this where maybe worldwide we, people start branding this organization the way it should be branded as a cult. And, and, you know, are you worried about, any blowback? Are you worried about anything that has to do with like your personal safety or anything like that? Like, are you good? Are you okay? As far as that goes? Yeah, I'm okay. Yeah. I mean, the advantages of speaking out and the good that can come from it far outweigh anything they can do to me. I'm not worried about it. Now so they can try and I, I no doubt they will try because it's obvious they're trying everywhere to shut it down. But yeah, yeah. no, it's time. This story needs to be told. It's, it's interesting because, um, you know, I, I put this picture up the last time too. And so that's Bruce Hales. Is that correct? That's Brucey. That's Brucey. And, and Brucey <laughs> is the current uh, dear leader of the cult. Is that right? That is correct. So he is now the person that receives fat envelopes filled with cash. Um, you know... It's interesting because I, I almost don't know where to go with this story anymore because it's, it's both like a cult and like a mafia. And I'm not trying to be, you know, inflammatory or, or when I say that it's not meant to, to, to sort of raise eyebrows, you know, intentionally. But, you know, if someone if you were to ask 100 people on the street, hey, what kind of business do uh, <laughs> is it when underlings pass fat envelopes full of cash to the leader of the of, of, of the, uh, of the, of the business and, and 99 out of a hundred will say mafia. They'll think of Tony Soprano and, you know, with, with all of the, we, we've, we've, un, well, we've uncovered or we've researched, um, in 2021 and 2022, uh, brethren related companies or brethren owned companies made $2.4 billion in, PPE contracts from the pandemic. I, I was just wondering if when you were still involved with it, how much of the business were you aware of? I know that women weren't really kept in the loop, but because of your bloodline and because of who you were, do you have any inner workings of how, do you have any inkling or, or, or any um, insight as to how the inner workings of the business side of the Brethren worked? The inner workings now are completely different than what they were, you know, sort of when I was there. If you want to back up to the money part of it, um, I know we kind of talked a little bit about it last time. And I told you about 
the envelopes of cash and opening the envelopes of cash and the stacks of bills in every different currency. And kind of in the last couple of days, I was sitting there thinking and I remembered a really interesting story. Um, we had these like lunch breaks um, every Sunday. It was kind of in between the meetings. And we were, because of my dad and the situation with my dad passing, we always went to Grandpa Simonton's for the break every Sunday. And I remember this one this one Sunday, um, they audited my grandpa in maybe like the early 80s, I think it was. And he was really upset about this audit, of course, because he had to pull out his, all his books and everything. And during the course of this break, I remember him looking at, at one of the guests that was there and he said, Rusty, you know, and I'm using a, you know, that's just the nickname he called him. He said, Rusty, you know, they've done an audit on me. And of course, Rusty looked at him and shook his head and said, that's, that's just too bad. That's just too bad. And he said, you know, they didn't find nothing. They didn't find nothing. But you know, Ma's smarter than them anyhow. She had the extra cash down in the in the fruit cellar in a jar behind all the veggies. They ain't going to catch me. And I wow. thought about that story this week and I thought, man, that just that just sums it all up, that story. Well, it does. And it also kind of um, I mean, they found I think I was told they found like 20 million dollars after he had passed away. In his house. Possible. I'm not privy to that fact. I know there was a large amount of money that what was happened to that money? and that's not all the money. What happened to that money? Good question. There is no transparency. There is no records. Um, and I think that's what you notice about today's business um, activities. Every, and people don't realize there's branches of this cult all across America, all across Canada. They're in your little communities. And they're building businesses and those businesses are not being run. I mean, they are generally being run by the people that are right there, but the main part of that is coming out of Australia. And there's big sums of money that's being handled back and forth between those businesses. How much of it are they putting in through the tax-free, you know, charitable status? How much of it are they actually declaring? There's no yeah, records. There's no transparency. They seem to be splashing the pot, if I may borrow a term from um poker but you know um or splashing multiple pots <clears throat> excuse me when they you know they have all these businesses that are plymouth owned i i don't know i mean the, the rumor is that and I'll, let's just leave the brethren out of it just for a second but the idea of um religious institutions laundering money is not a new idea this is <laughs> this is something definitely that, not <laughs> yeah this is something that scientology has to deal with this is something that the catholic church has to deal with the mormons have to deal with this because anytime that you have a tithing where the flock or the diocese or whatever is supposed to give their tribute to <clears throat> to, to to the grand exalted leader or the the pope or, or the vatican or whatever you know you're gonna run into serious problems like, i mean i i remember being a kid and being in catholic church because i grew up a catholic um, I'm using air quotes now because my parents never went to church and weren't really Catholics. Um, but we, we, you know, I went to Catholic school and everything. And I remember thinking when the collection plates were being brought out, even as a kid, even as like a 12 year old, I was like, oh, I wonder who keeps track of that. I wonder what happens when all that money goes behind the altar. And yeah. I wonder, you know, if the government knows how much it is. 
the easiest yeah. example that I can think of are like, you know, servers at restaurants and bartenders yeah. who all seem to make about 30 grand a year, even though they make probably about 60 because they don't really count their tips. Now they don't have a cult, so I'm not really comparing them to the cult, but it is but, yeah. sometimes it's, it's, it's almost self-evidently corrupt. Exactly. You know? Yeah. And okay, so the money stuff aside, I, I really wanted to get back into um, the Maple Creek stuff. So you lived in the Maple Creek community for how long? For, well, we stayed there for about eight and a half years. Okay. And we had Cheryl Hope on. Cheryl Hope kind of kicked off a lot of this coverage because Cheryl Hope, um, you know, she she went through some pretty awful, just harrowing um, abuse at the hands of a uh, of an individual that uh, was an elder inside the Maple Creek um, PBCC. What do you call them? Branches? What do you call them? Um, they call them localities. Localities. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I, and and we covered this in the last interview, but obviously we, we want to cover it again. You put out a document that I'm still not posting because my lawyer said not to yet. But you created, you drafted a document that, and, and wasn't that document actually a letter that you intended to give to uh, Hales? Was it was it Bruce Hales or his dad at the time? It was his dad at the time, and it was delivered to him. And um, we actually know? sent it by DHL courier. Yeah, cost me seventy five bucks, so I remember. <laughs> yeah, we also delivered it to uh, two brothers in North America that would have been considered, you know, responsible for North America. And then we okay. delivered it. And I personally delivered the three in Maple Creek to three brothers in Maple Creek. So there was six copies delivered on the same day at around about the same time. And I am. Um, can you uh, tell us if there was any response at all to that letter from either Hales or from any elders, like whoever got the uh, a copy of the letter? Was there ever any response? Um, Their response was, I mean, it was mixed, of course. There was response locally, um, and that didn't end until we left the place. Um, they were extremely angry. They felt like an evil report had been taken out of the locality. That's what they that's what they blamed us for. Um, when you actually went through line by line through the report, there was very little errors. Um, there may have been, you know, a day difference or something like that, but the spirit of it was there was very little error in it. They were just very angry that their business had been taken out of Maple Creek. Right. Um, and so now um, I want to go over that the, the document again, because at one point there was a, a list of names of young people who either were forced out of the church or left on their own accord. And yes. when I read those names after reading that document, um, it, it the feeling was overwhelming that this was this could have been a list of abused kids. Yes. And when you were uh, creating that document, were you thinking that at the time or were you just listing the names of all the people that weren't there anymore? And then it dawned on you later. Like how did that work? I created that document because I was extremely disturbed at watching and I'd only been there when I created that document, I had only been there for seven and a half, eight years. And I had watched 18 young people. Um, either be pushed out. Some of them pushed out as young as 13 years old. And you watch 18 young people in a locality of like 150. That's a big percentage of the future of your locality. Yeah. 
And, and the fact that they were all around the same age group and the fact that we know that at least one of the, okay, this is what we know. Actually, Cheryl Hope was one of those people that was on that list. Um, She has come out with stories of absolutely disgusting abuse there. And I'm not going to name anybody else. One of the reasons why we're not showing the document is because I don't, you know, there's no point in showing a document, especially that page when we have to redact all the names, it might be powerful to view it, you know, but I don't want to, you know, I, I just want to try to keep this as, <clears throat> as first of all, as legally sound as I can. Um, and yeah. second of all, I don't want to try to come at it like a tabloid would, but there is another name on that list of, um, uh, of all those young people that we know has accused, um, has allegations of, of abuse from one of the elders, um, in Maple yes. Creek as well. Um, yes. I think there's a couple of people on that list that are no longer with us that may have, um, or at least one. Am I, am yes. I off on that? I, I believe I, you're correct. Yeah. I think there's one. And, um, there was rumors that, she, that, that person was abused before she, now listen, like w- this is why I can't, you know, put the list up because we're still, we're still working on this. We're still digging. Yeah. But you know, the, the the granddaughter of someone who's considered to have like a divine bloodline to be the person that sort of internally blew the whistle. What happened to you after that? Did you leave or were you forced out? Like what, what was the reaction to the letter in the sense of the community and how you were treated? Well, you know, watching the kids as they left, um, I had five kids myself during that time period and I just remember looking at my kids and thinking, my goodness, these these kids, these are like these are precious young people. And so when we first sent out the letter, I mean, I knew there would be blowback because anytime you do something, you mess with those in the lead. They get mad. I mean, they don't ever accept the blame. It's never their fault. Um and especially like coming from me, because women are supposed to shut up and sit down and just have babies. Um, and so I knew they would be angry. I knew they would be very angry, but I had no idea how angry. Um, in the four and a half months after we released the letter, and you would think, you know, the letter's out there. Everybody has the copy, you know, say your piece and get over it. And then let's work together and fix it. And that's that's what basically we went to them and said, look. You know, it wasn't a tattletale letter. It wasn't to get you in trouble. It was to draw attention to what's what's happened and let's work together and pick up the pieces and fix it. You know, and so we would sit down with them and try and work with them. And every time they would come back with, no, you know, you're supposed to you're supposed to be submissive. You should have never taken that report out of here. And we spent four and a half months of every single night when we went to meeting them attacking us in the meeting for what we had done. And finally, at the end of four and a half months, um, I got sick, ended up in the hospital and had a bleeding ulcer. And the doctor looked at Rick and he said, you need to just get her out of here. And so we packed up that day, took our youngest and left Maple Creek and went to Winnipeg. Well, we got to Winnipeg and started discussing sort of the situation and, and going over exactly what had happened. And in the next two weeks, you know, sort of discussing it with the lead in Winnipeg and everything, they finally said, listen, you need to go back and get your kids. Um, And everybody was concerned enough about our safety and about the kids and concerned that Maple Creek would take those kids away from us. That when we went to go back to Maple Creek, they provided two brothers to go with us and escort us to Maple Creek to pick up our kids and bring them back to Winnipeg. 
So there were two members of the church in Winnipeg that escorted you just to make sure you could get your kids out? Yes. One from so, Nietzsche, and he was my uncle. Mm -hmm. And then we picked up a brother from Regina on the way to Maple Creek as a second person. That's how concerned the elders in Winnipeg, Nietzsche, in that area were that we wouldn't even be able to get our kids back. Is there, because that almost sounds like there's a divide between localities. Is that common in the Brethren Church? Like, is there some rivalries ever or, or just dis, like, like, you know, profound disagreements between one locality and another? I don't know if I would call it disagreements, but I think it was a recognition that the situation in Maple Creek was so extreme that it even disturbed them. And the yeah. reaction to it, like, I don't think anybody ever expected that kind of a reaction to it. Um, if if we look now, like I, I, I showed this last time, but I just think it's obviously worth sharing again. Um, Brethren bid to cover up sex assaults on girls. This is from 2006. Potential witness and exclusive brethren sex abuse case paid to remain silent. That's 2017. I was raped by leader of Exclusive Brethren. Shock testimony for a man who alleges he was abused as a child by Big Jim Taylor. This is from 2013. Obviously, the abuse would have been from the 70s or 80s, possibly. Um, he's like a father to me. Harrowing note written by a girl 12 who was molested by an Exclusive Brethren leader after members, including her own mother, convinced her to say she had made up the rape. Like... You know, a part of me wants to appeal to the media directly, uh, you know, and, and I think someone, especially someone like yourself who used to be in it and who was part of an important bloodline within the Brethren, this is not controversial to say that this group has a serious problem in various different criminal areas, including sexual abuse, physical abuse, confinement, money laundering, possibly corruption, cozy contracts with the government, like if we found out tomorrow that um, Scientology own Scientologists, I don't know how you would how you would uh, even frame it. Companies owned by Scientology, let's put it like that, in like all the Commonwealth countries, New Zealand, Australia, you know, the UK, Canada. I don't know yeah. what it was like in the United States. How if there were any? But all of these groups connected to the Brethren, all these companies connected to the Brethren, were received a total of two point four billion dollars. La it, during the, the, the pandemic in contracts. If we found out those were Scientologists, it would be front page news forever until, yeah. until every leader of every one of those governments explained themselves as to how a cult can be so successful yeah. obtaining contracts worth billions in so many different countries. Do you have any insight as to the, the type of... Um, business and political connections i don't know the answer to this i don't even know if you know anything i'm just i'm just curious uh as as a person who was once there and who your grandfather was you know like was it something that was well known from one locality to the other that hey you know what our businesses are really well connected worldwide to governments like did anyone even know this you know what when when i was still in there that wouldn't have been the case um this is all a very new um sort of it's a new trend. And I would say it, it probably came online with Brucey. Um, he tends to be very business minded. Um, so sort of back in my time, I don't think we saw, for one thing, we didn't see all that money that's flowing between all these businesses. And if you look at all these businesses, if you ever get the name of one of them or two of them and you happen to pull them up, what you'll notice is not only are they all connected, they're all connected on LinkedIn. 
They all have the same um, universities. They all have the same school names. Um, and they're all so similar that as you pull them up, you go, oh, this looks like. And then you, you start to go into the business and you see, well, you know, XYZ laminating buys from ABC uh, laminate supplies. And they're all so interconnected. I don't know if something happened to somebody in one of them. I don't know now how they would ever separate them. And yeah. the reviews, even on the pages, like if you if you look at the reviews that they are posting on their pages, they're doing business reviews for each other. Like I saw a Winnipeg, a young brother from Winnipeg did a review for a business in Knoxville, Tennessee. They are so interconnected and they're supporting each other so closely and building each other up. Yeah, you know, it, it's it's you know normally you know businesses that do that. I mean that 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 is something it's fairly normal. But when it's when these businesses are all owned by the same call, I mean, it, it's so funny. Even when I'm speaking right now out loud about how these businesses are owned by a cult, I have to just stop. I'm like thinking to myself, isn't that enough <laughs> for our media? Yeah. Isn't that enough? Yeah. Because I, I'm I'm hoping to have this reporter. Uh, Ruth Hill on next week. This is the ex-Plymouth Brethren Christian Church members call for its charitable status to be stripped. And, you know, I, I, I'd like to talk to her because, I mean, this those stories that have come out of New Zealand are brand new. They came out in the last few days. Yeah. And it's yeah. about the Plymouth Brethren getting, securing contracts during COVID um, for millions of dollars. It's also about how Bruce Hales receives hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash and big fat envelopes like Tony Soprano does. And, you know, I'm glad to see that media in other countries are starting to get it. The media in Canada doesn't seem to care at all. Do they not care or have, have the brethren in Canada done a better job of squashing it? Well, that's a good question. Cause I told you last week when we were talking about whether or not it was a cult that, you know, in my mind, even 10 years ago, it checked, it checked off nine out of 10 of the common symptoms of a cult sitting here this week in one week. I, I would say I need to revise that. It definitely checks all 10. And that's that just 10 from the thoughts. stories and the feedback that I've gotten in the last week stories that I had no idea. Yeah. Listen, and that 10th box last week, that the, the, the nine out of 10, the 10th box that you didn't check um, was sexual abuse. Exactly. And that's no fault of your own because, this is like brand new stuff for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I was probably is, in a protected position because, you know, nobody wants the granddaughter of Mr. Symington to know that this is going on. And even when it did go on, they successfully buried it. Yeah. You know, How did they, they do have that? people so oppressed and so intimidated that parents didn't even rise up. Parents that knew a child was being abused didn't take that child. Because they were too scared. Or this one. Um, the 12-year-old girl yeah. who was molested by an exclusive brethren leader after members, including her own mom, convinced her to say that she had made up the rape. Her own mom. Right. And that was right. the part of the story that that's, to me, that's the cultiest, if I may use that word, yeah. part of yeah. that headline. Yeah. Because uh, as, as, as has been explained to me by Richard Marsh, by yourself and other members, other ex-members, um, you know, the the church itself is at the top of the of the totem pole when it comes to the who you respect the most and who you listen to the most. 
parents are not on the top. It, it's no. it's the organization itself that is on the top of that list. Yes. And that can make parents do pretty awful things. Like, you yeah. know, like there's a part of me that wants to have some sort of sympathy for people who truly believe that the organization deserves more respect than their own, than the word of their children. Right. Um, because they were born into it. But, but then it must go against every instinct, you know, like when you were driving back to get your kids from Winnipeg to Maple Creek, were you mm -hmm. worried about their safety? Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, I was worried we would walk up to the door and they would say, no, we're not going to let you take your kids. Um, because it happens. My mom had it happen. Um, my sister chose to leave my mom's house and go back to the brethren. And you're virtually, you're virtually, your hands are tied because you're fighting against the cult. You're fighting against that money. You're fighting against your kids have been brainwashed. And that's, that was really what I was concerned about. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. Yeah, we had um, we had an ex member who was featured on the documentary Breaking Brethren. I don't know if you've seen that or not. Yep. Um, yep. But Dennis Dennis Rag was uh, was on the podcast not too long ago, but a week ago or so, and he yep. was saying, um, and actually in in the documentary, listening to he recorded a phone call between himself and his eight year old son at the time, yep. and it was really spooky to listen yep. to um, a dad say, you know, I want to see you, and the yep. kid is just. No, I can't see. I don't want to see you. You have to stop. And it's just like, holy shit. Like this is, yeah. this is clearly a cult, you know? And I want to keep on saying that over and over and over again until I either get sued, killed, or covered by the mainstream media. Because yeah. um, I'm just going to tell the audience something. I had to file a police report um, recently as almost like a, a precaution because some strange things have been happening since in the last week or so, including weird cars that are just parked outside where I'm staying, um, including a ton of really bizarre messages in all of my social media about, um, you know, that, that are clearly designed for me to try to like click a link so that they can fish my, my computer and they can do whatever you had a denial of service after our interview. Um, yeah. Cheryl had her computer hacked after, uh, after like sometime in the last week or so. And, you know, uh, I had to tell them, and I told the police, look, at, it was on advice of somebody who, who has a lot of experience um, in security um, and in um, 
government security. Let's just put it that I don't want to give away who it was, but this person, um, you know, it strongly advised me to file a police report. And so I did. And I had to tell the police, look, I don't have any proof of anything, but all I know is that I'm reporting on this group and now all these strange things are happening. And I just want it on record that um, if, if you find me hanging from, you know, a scaffold, (laughs) probably because of that, (laughs) you know, and yeah, it's, but I won't stop. And, and I, and I really commend the bravery of people like yourself and Cheryl and Dennis and others and Richard Marsh. You guys are like so important when it comes to whatever the end game may end up being with this group. And I mean, are you prepared to take that on? And, and if you are, um, you know, are, are you uh, like, are you comfortable with the idea of doing that? Oh yeah. I mean, this thing has just started. Yeah. We are prepared to take this thing until, I mean, just even Maple Creek. Um, I said to somebody today, I'm prepared to do this podcast. I'm prepared to send it to every resident of Maple Creek so they understand what is in their community. And it's not a case of trying to, um, you know, some people say, oh, you're just trying to make them look bad or, or whatever. And it's nothing to do with that because there's some really, really super good people in there. But the danger that is emanating when any group gets that much money um, and then when they start to foray into politics, because we've been able to trace, you know, like I said, when I came out of that group in 2001, I didn't know of ever that group having made a political donation. And the first one that I tracked was in 2004. And that was a half a million dollars given to a political candidate. Now, my daughter when she came home from school in 2000, brought home a UNICEF box, you know, and she said, and she asked someone at the time, she said, can I put some money in this and take it back? Cause I really want to help these little kids. And they said, no, we, we never mix our money with the world's money and give. Yeah. Uh, my, my camera went dead. Sorry. Oh, no, your camera's fine on my end. So go, don't worry okay. about it. You're good. All right. Um, yeah, and so, and, and- you know, you take back to 2000, they wouldn't have mixed their money together. Mm-hmm. Um, we're now in 2022, and they're actually making donations that would influence, you know, political political movements. They've done it in Canada. They've done it in Australia. They've done it in New Zealand. I've tracked a bunch in, in the America. And those are things that they definitely wouldn't tell the you know, the public run of the course people that belong to them, because there's a lot of people that would, you know, their ears would pop and they'd go, you're doing what? Because the older people wouldn't even believe that this group would do such a thing. Well, that's the thing. And and we, and so in Canada, this is uh, prime minister, Stephen Harper in 2006. And he was the only prime minister in modern times to use his own Bible uh, when he was sworn in. Um, for the, for the first time as prime minister and Richard Marsh, uh, told me that the day or two after he, uh, was sworn in that he was in, um, Saskatchewan. I'm sorry. I pardon, pardon me, but I forget which, uh, politicians office that he was at, but they, anyways, there was a bunch of brethren there and they were all excited because Stephen Harper took the oath of office on a Plymouth brethren Bible. Yeah. And then, um, you see in 2011, Chuck Truen, Roy Taylor, Brad Mitchell, Ron Barnes, Ralph Mooney, all either Plymouth Brethren. I don't know if Brad Mitchell's a member or not, but he's definitely connected in politics, but the rest of them are all Plymouth Brethren cult members. 
This is them sitting in the very front row when Stephen Harper was reelected in 2011, which speaks to what you were just talking about regarding donations and what it buys. And, you know, we in Canada are still trying to figure that out. You know, we're trying to figure out how much Plymouth Brethren members or before the rules changed, there was a campaign finance rule that changed somewhere in like 2008, 2009, something like that, uh, where the Harper government decided that they weren't going to allow um, corporations, uh, including unions, to donate to political campaigns anymore. And that's because they knew that left wing or center left parties got all their money from unions. And right. the conservatives knew that they could get their money from um, singular donors uh, instead of corporations, and they would they would make out like gangbusters. And right. since then, they have out um, fundraised every single party. I think that combined in every election, the conservatives just kill it, and the rest right. of the parties just kind of like do what they think. But you know, we have no idea how far the corruption goes. What we do know are the circumstantial evidence things, like. The lawyer for the, uh, the 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 guy who was the lawyer for the Conservative Party of Canada is also the main lawyer for the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. So that's the kind of information that we know, right? And we have a hard time trying to follow through to be okay. So the lawyer is the same guy. Does that prove anything? I guess not. But Jesus, like <laughs> you know, yeah. But it is coincidence, and I'm I could almost guarantee the run of the mill brethren. Um, probably wouldn't even know that because when I was pulling up the political donations, I had to chuckle because, you know, people that I knew, you know, had donated for Hillary for president, but then the one in Tennessee donated for a very conservative Republican. So it's not like they're all um, aiming for the same party or for the same result. Well, These often are- corporations do that as well. So cor- yeah. like banks, for example, will, will, uh, if they'll donate, to Trump and to Hillary so that whoever gets in a favor can be called in. It doesn't matter to them. But Um, then, but what you got to remember is these are people that don't even vote. They will not vote. Really? So why are you making all these political donations when you're not allowed to vote? Well, that to me is a huge red flag. And then how are you getting all of these PPE um, contracts but you don't even vote, but you sure make some really big political donations. It almost makes you wonder. I'm not saying, I'm just saying, you know, <laughs> No, it doesn't make, I mean, it makes me laugh because it just seems so obvious, right? Like, you yeah, know, yeah. how we're, 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 we're now in the position of trying to piece all this together yeah. using all of the circumstantial evidence that we just talked about with no smoking gun. Yeah. Right. And yeah. And it's <laughs> and it's kind of funny because, you know, if, if you take an example of someone who's not politically connected, you know, like if, if there's graffiti all over my neighborhood and then yeah. they catch me with no graffiti spray can, but I got paint all over my hands. They're not just going to be like, well, there's no smoking gun. That's just coincidence, you know, like and that's what we're dealing with. Right. Right. And what I don't understand is um, for the media, you know, they would haul you in for questioning because you got paint on you. But why are they not like connecting all these dots and going, Hey, wait, I don't want a cult um, getting all the money from the PPE contracts. That's my taxpayer dollars that went into that, you know, those PPE contracts. Do you really want that money to go to a cult who's headquartered out of Sydney, Australia? 
you know, it's time for some of these neighborhoods to wake up and go, hey, wait, this does actually affect me. It's not just as innocent as these people that go to church every day. Yeah. And you know what? One of the methods that we are that that I'm trying to figure out, um, you know, in order to accomplish more exposure for this cult is to make this man famous. So just just to review, that's Bruce Hales. Bruce Hales is basically, you know, he's he's the leader of this cult. He he is he is um, you know, the person who receives right now the fat envelopes. He doesn't go anywhere without a secret service like detail with the wires in the ears, heavily armed guys with armored vehicles and everything. Um, he is rarely seen in public. You know, the, he um, you know, there are stories in Australia and New Zealand that mention him. I don't think anyone in Canada would know who he is if, you know, his picture was up, but he is like, he's the one that we, I I think that we need to focus a lot of this attention to because, you know, we're doing all this piecemeal reporting, like, um, you know, in New Zealand and Australia and the UK and here, and that's great and everything. But I think the one thing that could connect all of those dots together would be a focus for all of us, all, all of us reporters in all of our different respected continents to focus on Bruce Hale, like Bruce Hales, he, he's the one, right? Like this is the, there, there is admiration for this man. Is there not? Yes. I mean, he says jump and they will say how high literally. Right. Um, and then this is people that um, even, even when we left there would have been very kind, very, and very smart, very intelligent people that ran their own businesses. They didn't need a business team out of Sydney, Australia to run their businesses. A lot of these people are hardworking, uh, very dedicated, very intelligent people that started their own businesses. And it's like he's come in with his money and they have just become robots. It's sad. Yeah. um, But I also think that it's it's an opportunity. You know, if, if, if there's enough ink spilled with his name on it eventually he's going to have to either make a statement or start you know firing on all cylinders and and suing us people like myself and i welcome that in a way because then he leaves himself open to disclosure and then we can finally have maybe an honest conversation so if i'm accusing the brethren i'm not saying i am but if i were to accuse the brethren of you know, of money laundering or corruption or whatever, um, you know, and I spelled it out like that and he sued me, then great. But the sexual abuse stuff is really kind of, you know, the f- like what I'm, you know, I guess I shouldn't say I'm only focusing on that. I'm focusing on that. One of the reasons I'm focusing on that, I should say, is because I've been inundated um, with emails and messages from ex-brethren members from literally across the planet from Europe, from New Zealand, from Australia, from the United States, from Canada, everywhere that the brethren have localities. I have been inundated with emails from people claiming sexual abuse, claiming physical abuse. Um, you know, Richard Marsh, uh, basically the, 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 the former lawyer of our prime minister hired a well-known political fixer and bagman to basically hand over Richard Marsh to the brethren under the auspices of fake criminal arrest warrants that weren't even real because they were just trying to utilize, uh, you know, they were trying to basically lie and say that he was a criminal who had an outstanding warrant and, you know, to convince people to hand him over. But when it was found out that he was not a person with outstanding warrants, you know, that, that fell through. 
And so right. Richard, Richard wasn't handed over. This is crazy. <laughs> All of and these this stories. This is crazy are, stuff. Yeah, yeah, this is crazy stuff. And and it's in your communities, you know. <laughs> how can I ask you a personal question? How has yeah. grow how did growing up in that kind of you know isolation and environment, how has that shaped you as a as an adult? Um, I would say I would say I was very, very naive. You know, when you when you make the decision to move to to leave that it's you leave everything that you have literally when we drove out of maple creek with our with our five kids in the van with these two brothers with us we left everything now luckily we had some friends that packed up our house for us and they brought it out to us and we sold the house remotely and stuff but we left the business and we left everything that we had invested in the farm and you literally move away and start over um, in some ways, it leaves you at a disadvantage, but in other ways, I can look at it and say, you know, it really drives you because you realize, okay, you get a chance to start over and you got to work really hard to make it a success. Yeah. Um, and listen, I, I, I think that the road that you took is both like, you know, it has all the awful elements, um, you know, of, of being brought up in a cult. It also must seem a little bit surreal. Like you must have good memories of your grandfather in you. You know, you must have like, you know, the odd good memory where, you know, so I don't, I, that's the weird thing about talking to someone like yourself. Like I'm not, I, I, I don't know who, I don't know if your grandfather was in, was an awful person or not. I have no idea, but it's a weird spot for you to be in. It would be like, you know, being the granddaughter of a very controversial politician or something. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and I mean the human side of you. He, the human side of you. He was your grandfather. He was, you know, he he was very kind, very nice to us. And yet, I know there was a report that came out a couple weeks ago about a lady that um, he had gone after her dad in in one of the meetings. And there's like 500 people in the meeting. I was there. I remember sitting on the seat right beside my grandma. And I remember that when Grandpa went after this man. I'm sitting beside grandma. She dropped her pen and she said, no, Jim, no. You know, so the all the elements of, of any normal, you know, somebody in your family yelling at somebody else, you're just like, you know, you shrink inside yourself and think, oh, no, that's terrible. You know, but yet it, he got away with it. What do you What do you mean when you say you went after him, like physically tried to attack him? Oh, no, he verbally assaulted him. Oh. Um, he called him names in the meeting. And, you know, the guy didn't, I mean, he could have picked up the mic and fought back, but he didn't. Um, and again, at least, I guess, at least at that point, he went after a man who could have reached the mic and picked it up and defended himself, but he didn't. Did um, grandma get a in lot trouble of times for they speaking? do it. See, a lot of times they do it and they'll go after a woman, knowing yeah. very well she can't pick up the mic, she can't defend herself because that's against the rules. Yeah, I was just going to ask, did grandma get in trouble for saying no, Jim, no? Because apparently women aren't even allowed to speak, right, at these meetings? No, she didn't get in trouble for it. <laughs> no. But no. I remember as clear as today, like sitting there beside her, she had her own opinion. So she was right. not brainwashed. <laughs> well, listen, um, what I'm going to I'm going to cut the interview there. And the reason why is because I think we're just going to keep having you on because I'm interviewing all these ex-brethren members over the next couple of weeks. And if you're open to it, uh, I'd like to have you on again after a few of these interviews. And sure. um, 
and and definitely let's keep in touch i i you know you're you're you with be, between you cheryl richard and dennis i can't even tell you how much information that we've received that confirms our suspicions that this group is is a cult and i yes. think um and i'm gonna stay on this um yep 10 out even of 10 if it costs if it costs me everything i i i just kind of have to i just i feel like there's kids and this is serious actually i, I feel like there are kids in these uh, Plymouth Brethren localities or communities right now yeah. that need our help. Yeah. I, I can't stop thinking about that. Yeah. I, like I said to Cheryl, I said, when the day we drove out of Maple Creek, I still in my throat felt like 18 young people. It just about broke me to drive away because you can't do anything more once you leave. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like this is huge. I get a chance. I'm going to say my piece. 18 young people were kicked out, put out on the street. Some of them as young as 13 years old. That should just horrify every resident of Maple Creek and every person in the whole world. Yeah. You look at your own kids and, and look at them at, at 13 years old. Um, do they deserve to be put out on the street? No. No, they don't. Um, you know? They also don't deserve to be in an abusive situation either. So it's a weird thing. Like it's... Yeah. Were they doing them a favor in a sense while covering their own ass probably, but still excommunicating these people as a way to get the evidence to leave in a sense, right? Like, well, I mean, there know. is that side of it. It's just, it is just about unthinkable to think that a parent would do that with no reason. That's for That's sure. True. Carmen Drever, thank you so much. We'll have you again on soon. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. You have a good night. All right. Bye. Carmen Trever of uh, James Symington, uh, the former exalted leader or whatever he's called, universal leader. There's like five different monikers. Um, listen, we're just going to keep going. I, I, I meant that, that there's, you know, right now 55,000 members. I don't know how many members out of that 50 or 55,000 are children, but I do know that there are several stories that are already public about the Plymouth Brethren, about sexual assault inside this organization. And, you know, there is no media outlet in this country that is bothering with it. How could that be? How could we have a media where we know that there is a group that has systemic at least sexual abuse allegations, which is usually enough for our media. I mean, let's be honest about something. This is what makes me kind of fucking sick about this shit. Our media for years, for, for from like 2017 or whenever that was, you, I, I thought until today, had nothing but the most ferocious, voracious appetite for sex stories that had no evidence. You know, the Me Too era did so much enormous good and 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 the only criticism that i really had about the me too era was that um there was a tendency by certain news reporters and outlets to take an anonymous allegation against the famous person have zero evidence at all and run with it and and destroy a person and maybe that person deserved to be destroyed but the point is there was no evidence almost none almost every time it was just the allegation the allegation itself was was the story we have the same thing 
And because the person isn't a Harvey Weinstein or a Gian Gomeshi or, you know, whoever else uh, in, 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 in this country or in North America, uh, you know, it's not a household name. So I guess they don't want to cover it. This is a religious organization with widespread allegations of the sexual abuse of children, not women, you know, who are put in a, in a, in a, uh, in a spot between a rock and a hard place regarding their career, like a Matt Lauer situation or whatever. These are kids. Where is the, the bravery? Where, where is the, like the thirst for these scandalous stories? Where is it gone? Why is it that we can take someone like Cheryl who um, filed a police report, who basically has Carmen Drever at least co-signing the idea that there was probably abuse going on because she was also in the community at the time. Um, you know, this man is, is, is now under investigation. It's been punted to um, the high crimes division of uh, the Regina RCMP. He apparently is already wearing an ankle brace and nobody even though this group is connected to the prime minister, the former prime minister, um, the lawyer of this group is the same personal lawyer of Stephen Harper or used to be. Where is the appetite among our media to talk about this shit? Like, wh why is it guys like me, like, you know, independent podcasters, you know, who, who is generally disliked by every editor across the country, but they can go fuck themselves because now what they're doing is deciding that, for some reason, this is too hot to handle. And I don't really understand that. I, I find that to be um, an affront to, to journalism and to the safety of kids. And it really makes me upset. That's why I'm not going to stop. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to keep going. I don't know what it's going to cost me in the end, guys, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't fucking care. This is the first time I think I've worked on a beat on, on a subject um, for more than a couple months where I am perfectly happy with the uh this organization attempting to destroy me or hack my computer or drive in their sedan and try to you know put the put the fear of god in me i guess i would say i don't believe in god but whatever um by by driving up and, and sitting there if that was them uh who knows but i'll happily be destroyed if it means saving a kid somehow you know i think um, and by the way, the, the credit isn't isn't mine. It belongs to people like Cheryl, belongs to people like Carmen. These are brave women that are coming forward, putting themselves at risk by reporting something that they either saw or had the horrible circumstances of, of experiencing. I'm just a guy that's trying to help them. They're 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 the brave ones, and this is not a humble brag or anything like that. I'm not virtue singling. I am I'm half pissed off and half kind of like completely determined to take a cult and to basically, um, you know, find a way to, to have an answer to, to courts and to justice um, and to the countless women and children that they allegedly have abused. And that's that. Um, so I have a couple of things that I want to announce, but I, I, I'm not ready to yet as per advice of my attorney. <laughs> so I'm not going to, um, but we have a bunch of things up in the next, in the next week. Um, tomorrow night. Uh, yep. Tomorrow night. Ashley Lindley is going to be on the show on uh, one of my heinous cases episodes. And 
simply put, she is going to convey what it is like to be the estranged daughter of a person convicted of murder. It, it, totally not what I had um, thought of when I created the idea of heinous cases. Heinous cases was supposed to be about just uh, all these famous Canadian cases and the lack of justice that surrounded them. But um, when it was brought to my attention, um, Ashley's experience and, and what her father had done and what it's like to sort of be the offspring of someone that did something like that. Um, yeah, I think that, that it, it actually fits perfectly. So that's tomorrow night at seven. Uh, you know, we'll see you then. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time on Black Ball. Thanks, everybody. Black Ball. Black It is your favorite girl. That's right, it's the Ali Mars, the one and the only. Everyone else just ain't me. I am the host of Welcome to Mars, a lifestyle podcast where nothing is off the table. I have come a long way from sex and dating and have transformed the new vibe to all things lifestyle. We still talk sex, but I'm more interested in the journey, where people have come from, how they made it, and where they're going. Subscribe or follow to a brand new look and a brand new era. Welcome to Mars. Subscribe or follow on Apple, Spotify, Google, or at theallymars.com. Because even with the new look, I'm still that same bitch you love to hate. Come on, let's go to the Blue Hotel. The podcast that goes everywhere the imagination dares. It's for the open-minded, the pleasure seeker. It's Jeff Woods with the new podcast about relationships and sexuality, theme-based with special guests, the Blue Hotel Hotline, and every episode climaxes with an adult bedtime story. Get a room and listen in at the Blue Hotel. Begins Friday, September 23rd.